You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Buffalo Happy Hour. Mike, what's going on? Derek, we are at Johnson Winery, and there's a lot of history that we have to discuss, but we should introduce our guests first. Absolutely. You guys want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm, I'm Fred Johnson. I'm the third generation Johnson to be involved in this business, and this is my dear wife, Jennifer, who I met, well, we married 38 years ago and met 42 years ago. Thereabouts. Wow. Almost going on to 40. Yeah. 40 year anniversary. Awesome. There's, nice. a, there's a trip to Paris, I think, being saved for. Nice. There you go. A lot of wine, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Good deal. So, for Johnson Estate Winery has a extremely long history dating back to 1877. And that history is just because that's when the original Frederick Johnson was born. So, I figured we would start there and then kind of work our way towards uh, present day. So, he immigrated to Canada and as a teen made his way to Cornell to study entomology. Then in 1908, he purchased a home and farm alongside the Freelings Creek in Westfield, New York, where we are now, and he planted apples, cherries, peaches, and Concord grapes. He soon realized he needed a name for his farm. So then Sunny Slope Fruit Farm was born, and after meeting his wife, traveling to DC and Pennsylvania for work for the Department of Agriculture, in 1860, he built a cold storage facility with wood from an old dairy farm that was on the property. Once Prohibition hit, he then started making wine in the basement of the farmhouse. So one minor correction, I think this this building, his apple cold storage building was built in roughly 1920. Perfect. I don't know the exact date. Just a a typo there. He was born in 1877, so he couldn't have built anything in 1860. No, not with math. (laughs) (laughs) Not with math. But that's that's fine. Um, We were throwing a a lot of dates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. In 1921, Frederick Spencer Johnson was born and grew up on the farm his father purchased. After serving in World War II as a naval aviator, he graduated from Cornell in 1946. And that history and that whole story is pretty interesting, so I think we should touch on that Mm -hmm. in, um, in a moment. So he raised his family overseas and eventually made his way back home in 1960 after the passing of his father. Then the first thing he did upon his return and taking over the farm was removing all the conquered grapes and fruit orchards to plant a French hybrid wine grape. And then in 1961, he opened the winery and received the New York winery license number two. Correct? The only minor detail I would add to that is that he probably kept some of his Concord grapes 
that right. his father had had. So those Concord grapes are indeed very old, but we still have likely the origins of that. Is that sure, correct, Sure, no, those, those Concord vineyards up on the hill date from the Peacocks. So those vineyards are over 100 years old. And you still own we that still same, own them and that we lot, essentially. Yes. And we still very proudly make Concord wine from them. That's amazing. And in fact, won a double gold medal from... San Francisco International Wine San Francisco, Conference. yes, 97 points, for, I think. For our Concord wine? For the best wow. native, well, red American native. If, if we can't, so this is the Concord capital of the world. This is Welch's headquarters. And people have been making wine out of Concord grapes forever. Sure. And, if, and <clears throat> Concord wine is very popular in what I call the Iron Triangle, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Cleveland. Oh, okay. And if we can't make the best Concord wine in the world, being at the center of it all and having done it for longer than anybody else, shame on us. Right. Good point. That's fair. How <laughs> many acres of Concord grapes do you have? 20. 20? Mm -hmm. Okay. Nice. And then to wrap up the historic section of it, before <laughs> we dive into the specifics on the Cornell journey, because now we're four generations deep into Cornell, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. So in 1998, Frederick Jr., Elizabeth, and Anthony inherited the farm. Uh, they oversaw winery operations and planted new vineyards and finished the goods warehouse. Plus, someone's calling. Someone's <laughs> Plus, he introduced new wines and fruits. Yes. And in 2010, Frederick Johnson Jr. became the owner of the farm and winery with his wife, Jennifer, which is right. you two. That is right. Perfect. So in 2011, they completed the renovation of the tasting room, which is where this we are. Glass and this glass wall. It's stunning. It came about then. Stunning. Yeah, right. We will definitely get photos before we leave. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. The, uh, where was I? Here. So <laughs> you finished that in 2011, which was to celebrate the 50th anniversary. That's correct. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge deal. Yeah. Definitely wanted to speak on that. So yeah. congratulations. Yeah. And then today, you guys are now the oldest operating East uh, Estate Winery in New York State. That correct. is correct. So a lot of. So there's a lot to get to there. Yes. <laughs> so let's let's go back to. Cornell in 1946. So what was the story with getting into Cornell with someone that may or may not have already completed high school? So that was the grandfather, yes. Frederick William Johnson, who was an immigrant from England. He immigrated to Canada first in Saskatchewan and Prince Albert, and then decided that, and he was a big reader, and we have some of his books in our library that are over 100 years old. Wow. Uh, Lee Bailey, who was a big horticulturalist and a writer, those books are in his library. He decided he wanted to go to Cornell, and that was in the mid-1890s. So he immigrated back to Ithaca from Canada in 1896. Was deemed the class of 1901 at Cornell, and then someone asked him the magical question of, sir, have you a high school diploma, and he had to admit that he didn't. And the result was he ended up coming to high school in Westfield as the 27-year-old mustachioed gentleman in the back of the classroom, getting probably three years worth of material completed in about a year. I think the, the issue was math. Yeah. Do you know oh. what trigonometry is? Uh, no. <laughs> That's his issue too, is math. Yeah, yes it is. And I'm not even trig, like basic math. But it's fine. <laughs> That's why we run a podcast. Yeah. yeah. So, so he did. He already he graduated from Cornell, yes. and then found out the the high school issue arose after graduation. There's a, a lacuna in the middle. So he was had been there a year or two when this issue came up. Uncle John Spencer, that everybody called him Uncle around here, 
was a friend of the founders, a young friend of the founders of Cornell, and they essentially boarded my grandfather with John Spencer here in Westfield at a house just down the road while he went to school here and completed his high school degree. Then he went back to Cornell and finished. But back in the early 1900s, whether or not you actually walked the stage with your diploma, I think was a little less um, sure. yeah, concrete. A well, he was an older guy, so when he graduated, he, I think by the time graduation happened, he was working with Comstock and setting up the Department of Agriculture in Washington. It was and a job. And in the mid-19, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in sort of 1906, 7, 8, he was actually publishing agricultural papers about the Great Berry Moth and other issues. Yeah, do you guys want to touch on that a little bit more about the Department of Agriculture and his role in there? I think that that's awesome. Well, I mean, he was a young, young guy, just all right, 29 at that point, but uh, had impressed some of the professors at Cornell who were in turn were the foundation guys or some of them for the Department of Agriculture, so they brought him along as a, their junior guy. And uh, we have pictures of him in California, and God only knows else following around with them. <laughs> but his, his specialty, my father says, is because the black fly stung him so badly out in Saskatchewan, he decided he wanted to make war on insects. So his specialty was entomology, <laughs> which is the study of insects. Oh, no, but I have, a theory, I have a theory that the whole phylloxera epidemic in Europe was happening in the mid-late 18, mid 1800s. I have a theory that he wanted to study entomology, just as our IT guys went crazy in the early 2000s. Sure. He wanted to study insects because he figured that was the source of the problem of phylloxera in Europe, which killed all of the vineyards there. So now, from an ent entomological standpoint. Right. Well done. Thank you, appreciate that. Uh, is, there, is there a lot of like concerns with the grapes and bugs? Like, Did his education help him with, in that aspect, do you know? Well, no. He, I mean, yes, in terms of a career, for sure. I mean, he ended up being called Professor Johnson around here, which he wasn't. But, um, and understanding it did. But here in the new world, uh, insects are not a particular problem for grapes okay. yet. Uh, and I say yet because there's an invasive species coming into Pennsylvania just now, which is going to give us a lot of, oh. a lot of trouble. Uh, but for the, the history of the wine business, you go back a generation to the 1840s and 50s and 60s in, in Europe, and an invasive species from right here, Western New York, if you like, or New England, made it back, or South Carolina actually made it yes. back to France and wiped out every single grapevine in all of Europe. So you know the really? Augusta Golf Course? What is sure. it yeah. called now? Yeah. I don't yeah. even know the no, name. No, it's Augustus. Yeah. 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 So it's famous as a golf course. Mm -hmm. It used to be before it was a golf course, a nursery, a plant nursery. In the middle 1800s, so when people became interested in what was growing in other countries and importing exotic things for their garden, a pink catawba vine from the United States was an exotic for someone in France and they would plant it in their courtyard garden because they could have fresh sweet fruit sure. right there and some of those transmissions because it was fast enough shipped by the steamships to get there live um, are the reason that the whole phylloxera epidemic started so i mean wow. and they can tra and there's a book called the the uh, Botanist, botanist and the vintner. The botanist and the vintner? The vintner and the botanist. Anyway. Um, and it talks about, with a map, showing you the center of infection and how it spread and, and covered the all, of, all of Europe. But it, wow. but it turned towns in Italy and Spain and France into ghost towns. Sure. And, uh, but 
and if you go back farther, that's you know Thomas Jefferson is getting great plants from Europe. Benjamin Franklin, and he's planting them at Monticello, and they last for three, four years, and they die, and he's very frustrated because Vitis vinifera, wine-making grapes, translating the Latin, are native to Eurasia, and they are not immune to this bug. All the American grapes are immune, and so as you know, he'd get Chardonnay or Cabernet or you know Primitivo or something over Semillon. Semillon Blanc over into Monticello, it would die. And that we didn't figure that out until after the Civil War that it was a specific insect. And so all Vetus vinifera, so all the California cabs are grown on American rootstocks and Cabernet tops because the insect attacks the roots. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. And it might be a good time here to talk about the family of threes which is sometimes how I share the story with guests. Mm -hmm. Yes, please. It's three generations, the grandfather, the father who founded the winery, and now us as the third generation. There are three buildings, the apple cold storage building that the grandfather built, then the wine tank building that his, his father, the founder, built, and then a finished goods warehouse that the third generation. Likewise, there are three generations of grapes. The grandfather had Concord, the American grapes, the Labruscan grapes, Concord, Niagara, Ives, Catawba. The founder planted French hybrid grapes, ones that had been evolved and developed in Europe to counteract the phylloxera epidemic. Oh, okay. And then were re-imported back here, in, in this case by his father, and planted in the 60s to create uh, a crop that would make good wine. And now in the third generation, now that they have the rootstock development to counteract the whole phylloxera problem and to provide nice Riesling. Oh, and by the way, the rootstock is always, uh, you can select it to accommodate your climate. So we can get cold climate, great friendly uh, roots. Okay. Um, so now we've planted viniferas like Riesling, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir. So this actually brings up the question of what is a terrier? Or a terrier's a dog. <laughs> sure. So maybe, of course, wait, I pushed it. So, so the French in me will say the terroir. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely knew that. Yeah. So, what, so by so definition, that is the. Yeah. It's you mean, so, go, okay, I'll so let it's, it's, it's <laughs> in, in wine, in, in fancy wine talk, it's, it's the meld of the ground, the people, the process, the winemaking all together. Uh, the analogy I like to use is if you're a painter, you do landscape paintings to, to really capture the essence of a region or a, a place. If you're a, vintner, a grape grower and a winemaker, you make a wine out of what that soil will best deliver and what that climate will best deliver. Okay, so it's essentially the environment the grape is raised so, in? The grape, the wine, okay. is all created. Very nice. So Western New York, what, what is the environment? What you're talking about Concord. Are there different types of grapes that thrive in the Western New York climate, or is it yes. specifically Concord? Well, Concord for economic reasons, sure. and I can go into comparative advantage and whatnot, but if you think of it in terms of kind of globally, right where we are here and in the Finger Lakes, we're Germany. Okay. Uh, if it grows well in Germany, it'll grow here. Sure. And Long Island and is France. And Long Island is oh. Med Medoc, if you like, in France you know, coastal sand uh, maritime influence. Mm -hmm. But Lake Erie for growing grapes is just a very special body of water. 
it's a very shallow lake, so it, as you know, it freezes in the winter, and yet right now the lake temperature is 78 degrees. So that does two things. It's an ice box early in the year, so the grapes don't get started too early, uh, and therefore makes things economics because we don't get frosted because we start late. Mm -hmm. But then it extends the harvest by a good 30 days and extends the warm weather in the fall. And so we, we can get more varieties of grape right. And it just works perfectly for Riesling. So we probably have as good a terroir for Riesling here in New York State as any place in the world. And it helps to explain why our semi-dry Riesling also won a double gold medal in a Eastern International Well, in the biggest Riesling competition yeah. in the country. There were 146 of them last year, wow. Rieslings. And we were, I would, I have to say we were voted the best North American or New World Riesling. Wow. There was one from Czechoslovakia who won the best of class. We just won a double gold. Oh, so, just a double gold. So, <laughs> so there were some, anyway. But uh, yeah, no, this is, uh, uh, you know, it's an up and, up and coming terroir. Uh, we can grow Pinot. The Germans call it Spaceburgunder. We can grow Chardonnay. No, we cannot grow Cabernet Sauvignon properly. Mm -hmm. Typically, four years out of five, we don't get enough heat light units to make a good wine. And, and one, year, one year out of five, you'll have a freeze that'll kill the vines. Probably. <laughs> Oh, really? So, so you guys, to give everyone context on the, the scale that we're dealing with in terms of land, how many total acres do you have? So we farm 13 varieties of grapes on 105 acres on a, depending on how you count it, a 200 acre or 350 acre or 500 acre property, depending upon what the devil we're doing. Okay, so you <laughs> all encompassing essentially 500 acres. Yeah, but but wow. vineyards, just over 100. Okay, and over 100, no, nearly 200 of them were really in your grandfather's portfolio of land. That's right. Okay, and then in terms of the grapes that are here with the land, uh, there's 13 varieties, like you said, in the 115 acres. Broken up into those three groups that I described. Sure. Yes. And then you have six French American hybrid, mm -hmm. uh, three Vinifera varietals mm -hmm. yeah. within 3,000 feet of the winery. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. It's fascinating. So what is the process of picking the grapes? So, it's, so the reason we ended up with 13 was because father was an experimenter and he was always trying something <laughs> new. So it's, I'm not selling that as an economic necessity. Okay? Right. And, and as Fred would also say, selecting a grape to plant and making the decision to plant it is a long-term process. It's not a six months, you've got the answer. Sure. It's first examining, and the process we go through is we buy some Pinot Noir grapes from someone else and we let our winemaker make wine. How do we like that wine? Do our customers like that wine? Okay. Oh, will we be able to find the right rootstock to grow this grape here? And where on our farm will it be planted and be happy? And I'll let you take it from there. Well, that's, that's usually the story is, you know, how do you like this business? And I so say it's great business to be when you're old and retired because you don't get your exam graded on a decision for 12 years. Sure. Because that, you make a decision today to go into the Pinot Noir business and 12 years hence, you'll probably have a couple vintages out in the bottles. So you'll start to get an idea of whether you've made a right it's call 12. or not. It's 12. It's shorter than that. Well, no. I mean, you got <laughs> two, years to, two years for the plants to arrive, five years for the plants to come to maturity, 
No, know? no, but you begin harvesting before five years. Yeah, yeah but then you got to make the wine, and then you got to age the wine, and then you got you know get it in the bottle, and by that time it's twelve years. <laughs> I love it. What is the aging process then for wine? Does it vary based off of the grape? Sure. Okay. So sweet, uh, sweet white wines. Uh, They'll be harvested in October and ready to drink in May. Okay. Right? Uh, ice wines, same way. Uh, full-bodied, uh, dry red wines, harvested in October and will be ready to drink two years hence. Wow. So you, you also mentioned that Long Island is similar to France. France. Mm -hmm. So do you bring in those grapes from, uh, from Long Island to produce... A Cabernet Sauvignon. Yes. Good question. Good. Perfect. The, the, the answer is yes. It's, I mean, why would, we just, everybody was always asking us for a cab. Do you have a cab? Do you have a cab? Because okay. we weren't going to make it because we don't grow it. Yeah. So, okay, fine. And we didn't want to take the risk to grow it, knowing what no, those we risks were. Yeah, mm -hmm. That was, it was a non-starter. So we looked around and found some very good Cabernet down on the North Fork of Long Island, which we've purchased for years. It gets picked in the evening or late afternoon, gets put on a refrigerated truck comes up here and is waiting for us at dawn the next morning and we put it in the press. Wow, that's amazing. So, so that's how, how we do that. Um, and yes, uh, Long Island and the coast of France uh, are very similar okay. climates. Uh, I tend to generalize but, but say that uh, California, and of course the multiple regions, is like Spain. Okay. Uh, we're like Germany, um, Oregon, some places in California are like France, and Long Island is very much like France. Okay. So you mentioned the press mm -hmm. for the grapes. Is that essentially taking your socks off and stepping on <laughs> grapes? Is that, <laughs> is that the new, the new age way of doing it? Yeah, well, no, it, it, I'm sure there are new age ways of doing it, and, you know, biodynamic stuff that, you know, cow's, sure. horn, cow's horns and phases of the moon, I tell you. <laughs> actually, sure. actually, it's... Uh, a great big sieve with a big balloon in it and the you know, six tons or eight tons of grapes go we have two of them go in there and uh, pump pumps the balloon up inside and squeezes the grapes up against the the perforation stainless steel perforation that's really smart we can and show it to you later yeah please yeah. that's awesome squeezes them and then the balloon lets go you oh. tumble it a couple of times yeah and then you do it again okay and uh it, you can feel free it Nancy, takes that you have a guest so. This is authentic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Not a problem at all. Um, so, yeah, that's how pre it's called a bladder press. and uh, Makes sense. They're, the older-fashioned ones are called screw presses, which there's a big screw that runs through the press, and the ends come squeezing into the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, you would see those in France, huge ones made of wood, and they'd have a donkey walking in a circle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So they use donkeys for that as well as a ton of other means, but that, okay, that makes sense. So uh, that's, that's um, for big commercial wineries uh, making mass market, they actually use it with something called a big screw press, and it's a great big screw, and the grapes start at one end and they just go through it mm -hmm. and come out the other. And the presses we have are manufactured in France or Germany? Germany. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how, what is your production like here from a like, number of bottles or however you would measure it? What can uh, you do a year? So we do about half a million bottles a year. Wow. And, that then, and then we do in gallons about 20-odd, 20, 30% of that again. In bulk wine, we sell to other wineries. Depending okay. on how generous Mother Nature has been. Sure. 
So getting to that process where you're helping other wineries, what is the process behind that? Are you sending them raw grapes or are you doing something with them before you send it? So what we're, we're doing is we're, it's in just, well, let me back up to the business model. One of the problems you have as a, as a winery is my grape crop, variety by variety, easily varies 30% year to year, depending on what the weather was like when they blossomed, how big a load they had the year before, all sorts of things. I always want to have enough grapes to supply my own brand. Absolutely. So we shoot to overproduce by 30%. So in a normal year, we will have 30% extra. We used to sell it as grapes to other wineries. And we just found as a better business model to go ahead and make dry bulk wine and then sell that throughout the year. And we end up with a really nice competitive advantage on that is because it's a state-grown wine it's the same lots we're growing for ourselves out of the same vineyards. So it's no different than what we're doing for ourselves. And so on a winemaker to winemaker basis, and it's the winemakers who are making the buy, um, and they all talk to each other, they know that they're getting first quality stuff. Sure. It's not seconds. Okay. And, and they understand that this is a seasonal or year-to-year thing. Some years we'll have plenty, some years we won't. Right. And that's the way that piece of the business works. Sure. Okay. Now getting... Once you start shipping grapes and you have some some wineries that are making grapes, but then you also have other wineries that are just receiving grapes, is there a difference between what a winery and a vineyard is, or are they interchangeable? Okay. Uh, so let's we talk about being an estate winery yep. or making estate wines, which is what an estate. That is actually a legal term in, in the U.S., okay. and it's a legal term in France. In France, it, we would say bottled on the estate, mise en bouteille au château. Here it's an estate wine, and it's an important thing oh, because chateau, no? if you grow your, the winery owns its vineyards and grows its own grape, one, it controls the whole process. Absolutely. But two, its bread is buttered on the quality side. And the reason for that is if I make an award-winning wine, I can easily charge a buck or two more a bottle. Mm. An extra buck a bottle will more than cover any imaginable thing cost-wise I can do in the vineyards to baby the, baby the grapes. So my, as an integrated operation, my bread is butter on making the best quality wine. If on the other hand I were just growing grapes and selling grapes, it's the reverse. I now want to have as big a crop as I can subject to not making the winemaker so mad that he rejects my grapes. Sure. Right, so all of a sudden it's counter, it's conflictive in that situation. And the French recognized that years ago, and the Americans have you know, followed it. As, so when you see a bottle of wine that says estate grown and bottled, the guy growing the grapes was growing the grapes to make the best wine possible. Okay. If it doesn't say that, the guy growing the grapes was growing as many as he could subject to not making the winemaker mad. Sure. And a good example of that is the typical tonnage of a grape farmer selling to Welch's, let's say, for juice, can do 15 acres to an, well, that's an or 15 tons to an acre? Well, that's just in local Concords. If I were growing Concords to sell, I would shoot for 12 or 13 tons to the acre. Okay. For our process here, I shoot for eight or nine. Gotcha. So if, if you're doing that much production, what actions do you guys take to maintain your land or to maintain your land? Because you're dealing with the same allotment of land that you have, right? So sure. And we're trying grape. to be good stewards for tomorrow. Absolutely. So I'm going yes. to pontificate here. Nice. One of my... No <laughs> clue what that means. 
one of my least favorite words is sustainability. Okay. It sounds defensive. It sounds like you're treading water. What we're trying to do is every year leave the vineyards in a little better condition than we found them the year before. The soil structure, the, the vine health, what have you. Uh, we're always trying to send our customers away a little happier than they came in. Sure. So, so it's the it's the philosophy of constant improvement, continuous sure. improvement, as opposed to treading water. Okay. So, and you know, we do soil studies every year. Uh, we do uh, leaf nutrition studies to see what the plants are taking up. I have a soil consultant come in every year. Okay. We put together a soil nutrition program. Uh, we put. I know that's uh, a thing. Oh yeah, and I mean it's farming. Uh, we. Of course, all the biomass that, well, so if you're a grape on this farm, the only way you get off the property is in a bottle of wine. Sure. Otherwise, you go back on the field and try again. <laughs> <laughs> so we recycle all, all the, you know, the, the skins, the seeds, the stems, the, the leaves and the tanks all go back on the fields. Okay. Very yes. nice. Okay. Wow. That's yeah, a lot of information. Absolutely. So what is the relationship like with the neighboring businesses in this area? Because you have a New York Spirits wall in your tasting room that features all the, the browns for the gentleman that doesn't drink wine and then and or the lady that doesn't drink wine that may come here. And then what other relationship do you have other than, like you mentioned, with the grape aspect where you may sell bulk grapes and things like that? Sure. Well, um, full disclosure, confession, I'm the head of the local chamber of commerce. Oh, very nice. <laughs> uh, but um, the economic development of Northern Chautauqua County is, is in, in our self-interest and in our philosophical interest. You know, we, not only do we want to make our land better every year and our business better every year, but we want to make our community better every year. And what drives, and just in a cold-blooded commercial, what drives traffic here to the winery? Not just us. It's the other wineries, it's the, and therefore the merchants wine in the town, sure. it's the restaurants, it's the bed and breakfasts, it's you know, everything else you got to do that makes a base of tourism and wine tourism. Yeah. And so all of that's important. So you know, we recommend restaurants, we work with the restaurants, the bed and breakfasts, and, and everything. We, we have a wine trail association, which is our marketing arm, that's in both states, Pennsylvania and New York. Okay. And we do most of our wine trail, most of our marketing through them. So it's very much a cooperative economic development uh, venture where everybody benefits. It's win-win. Yeah. And, and the wine trail has grown from 13 wineries in 2010 to 23 now. Wow. Not to say that that pandemic is going to have an impact and maybe reduce that number. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, but we have in the last 10 or 15 years made a mark in terms of leadership and economic development. So now we're recognized by the Chautauqua County Visitors Bureau as, oh, you're a driver of traffic, a significant driver of traffic. She says, she says we, she means the wine trail. Yes. Yeah. Which, oh, by the way, she was the one who really, put, she was the president of the wine trail who got them legal, paying sales tax. Really? Got them all squared away. So yeah, that's an interesting point because this area, the wine trail is one of the biggest things in the area. No doubt. So when was this founded, like the, the wine trail founded wine in? Wine trail was founded in 2002. Okay. It originally started with several wineries, Merritt and Willow Creek sure. in New York State. They had the wisdom to say, wait, there's some wineries in Pennsylvania we should join together. Okay. And they did that probably before 2008. 
Oh, yeah, it was before 2006, that. maybe. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then, as I said, by 2010, there were 13 wineries. Wow. So with you guys being the oldest estate, New York estate winery, what is the, the history like of the wine industry in New York State? Do you notice it being more recent or has well, it all so, been a while? While ago? Fred's father was the pioneer in western New York, there were other pioneers sure. in New York State, including Dr. Frank, who was the one who advocated the... Uh, Riesling. Yeah. Okay. Riesling. Oh, okay. The planting of vinifera grapes in New York State in the Finger Lakes area. So while his, he was starting, he was doing that in the 70s, so he's a little later than Johnson Estate, mm -hmm. but obviously a lot bigger enterprise right now compared to, compared oh, to us. So now uh, there are over 400 wineries in New York State. Oh my gosh. I didn't so know So if you started with one in 1960 or two, mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah. before, well, in the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s before Prohibition, there were several relatively large wineries here yes. making wine out of Concord grapes and, and what have you. Sure. And of course they disappeared uh, with, uh, with Prohibition and then all of this. So in 1961 when Father started, I think there were five wineries okay. in New York in total. Five so, total in New York. Yeah, that's crazy. Now, our, our listeners know we started with liquor and we we love our, our brown spirits whiskey in particular but there's a significant difference between the shipping and the resale of whiskey and the the spirits industry yes. than the wine industry yes. so since you're our first winery can you talk about that difference and how you guys are able to ship wine yeah what's going on yeah how can you get to do the cool stuff well i have to we have an admission to make as a farm winery yeah. that grows its own grapes, in New York State, we're allowed to sell the craft distilled beverages made in New York State by other manufacturers okay. from agricultural products grown in New York State. Under the same agricultural law that New York State passed, correct? Right. Okay. Uh, that yeah. part I don't yeah. know. But we are not allowed to ship this. Our right, sure, right. absolutely. Right. Right. Ship yeah. The liquor. Yeah. Um, all right, so. <laughs> I know, repeal, I know, repeal, long story. Repeal, repeal <laughs> of prohibition. To get prohibition repealed, they had to put a clause in there which gave the right to regulate liquor to the states. So it is the only commodity, when I say liquor, wine, beer, sure. spirits, it's the only commodity that has a carve out from the Commerce Clause in the Constitution. Wow. And there's a, so aggravating. Well, there's a famous case that is now 10 or 12 years old called the Granholm case. Okay. Where a Virginia winery took New York State and Michigan. The governor of Michigan at the time was Grant, uh, Mrs. Granholm. That's why it's called the Granholm case. All the way to the Supreme Court to say that your laws on shipping wine interstate are against the Constitution. Got all the way to the Supreme Court. Five to four, the Supreme Court rules in favor of the Virginia winery. It kind of cuts the baby in half. There was a mix of conservatives and liberals on the court who came together. Mm -hmm. And basically what they said was, okay, the repeal of prohibition gives the states the rights to regulate liquor, you know, spirits, wine, whatever, but this is a wine suit. You may still do that, but you may not do it in a discriminatory manner. So if you allow your local wineries to ship wine on the internet, then you must allow all all wineries across the country to do it. But it was specific to wine. So we would That's essentially why. have to repeal that carve-out to then be able to do the same thing with whiskey that we do with wine. Or, or 
or get that Granholm decision extended. Yeah. Okay. To extend its reach. Which wouldn't be a small feat at all, I'm sure. It should be pretty easy. <laughs> well, but, but, but... Yeah, we can't call somebody. <laughs> no, but, the, but, but the motion, I mean, this all is in motion. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this, is, this, this will sooner or later happen because it's... What it is is it's consumers and producers on one side and entrenched distribution interests on the other. Sure. And the consumers outnumber the entrenched distribution right. interests Absolutely. by a lot. So you're by like 350 million. <laughs> yeah. So that's my next point. So your location on the wine trail. Well, what is your business like distributed based off of the wine trail and traffic coming into your establishment versus people buying it outside or shipping it sure. somewhere? Because we're we've been around so long, mm-hmm. we're unusual in that, in just in gallons now, not in dollars. We sell about 20 percent of our wine out of this room. Sure. Uh, we wow. sell now another maybe 10 percent on the internet. The rest we sell to liquor stores in New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Which is our next question. So where can people find you um, other than this location? So in in western, central western New York, we're in virtually every liquor store. Okay. Uh, They don't always have all our products. Sure. I mean, depending on the liquor store. I mean, we've got 40-odd products. A typical liquor store will carry 10 or 6 or 12. Uh, We're in... Uh, between three and four hundred of the Pennsylvania state stores. Oh wow! Okay, and and those are liquor control board stores owned by Pennsylvania. Okay. okay. Uh, in Pennsylvania, that's where you buy your alcohol and some wines, but you may also buy wine in grocery stores. Sure. And there are also recently. there's also Quaker states in Pennsylvania, or it, it is a Quaker state in Pennsylvania, correct? It was founded by the Quakers, yes. Yes. So then, <laughs> see, history knew that. So then, how does that impact alcohol at all? In regards to sales and things, or maybe just that the Pennsylvania no, no. state has decided that they're going to control liquor by having it in liquor control board stores owned by Pennsylvania. Sure, sure. There, there are count counties in Pennsylvania where you know prohibition was very popular, and so therefore the the tight regulation of alcohol is still very popular. Okay, but that's Got a it. political dynamic in Pennsylvania. Sure. Okay. Wow. So as a shipper, you'll find there are half a dozen states like Alabama who do not permit intrastate shipment of wine, and therefore I can't sell to a customer by shipping it from New York to Alabama to their home. If they wanted our wine, they'd have to contact a distributor and have the distributor buy it from us, and that might be a whole other process. Sure. Okay. And so so that is a... Huge can of worms. Absolutely. You're scratching the surface. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll just we'll just acknowledge the iceberg and just keep sailing. That's right. Got it. Okay. So with this huge plot of land that you have, do you do any events or any gatherings at all? Well, Well, we used to. Yeah. Sure. (laughs) Right. Yes. Normal circumstances. Sorry. Sorry. Normal circumstances. No problem. So the the answer is yes, but less than you'd think. Okay. um, Again, we we have tried. In this wine business these days, wineries are in the entertainment business and in the wine business. Oh, yeah. We're skewed well to the right into wine business first, entertainment. Sure. Having started as a business that needed to have wholesale business as part of the equation. I mean, having been absentee owners for a number of years, our marketing program was just simply to make absolutely the best wine possible, sell it at a reasonable price, and let the consumer decide. Because mm-hmm. we weren't close enough to do all the marketing razzmatazz that, that goes on. Uh, 
we do do now normal times uh, vineyard walks most okay. most Sundays so when my legs better I'll take you around and we'll do a mile and a half walk every Sunday and oh, have cool. snacks and whatnot uh, in the fall, we'll give you a, a peck basket and some shears, and you can go pick all the, and eat all the grapes you want. The really? great grape walk. Wow. And so, and so we how were, often does that happen? So that, the month of September is September, on the weekends. About six weeks. Okay. Yes. To eat yeah, as many grapes as you want? You can you fill you your can basket. Eat, you can fill the basket. You can <laughs> eat as many as you want. <laughs> all right. So what are we doing in September? We'll be back. <laughs> Seriously. Right. So, and then you bring the kids along, bring the dog. Sure. Whatever. And I'll go along. And people, what I tell people is, look, you got to ask me questions, as you guys are doing now. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'll talk politics. That usually gets them to ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. At least you're awesome. awesome. And uh, then the other one, signature one we do with Chautauqua Institution, is that, that terrier word, what's terroir? We actually... Teach a course. Okay. Uh, and, and we provide a, a bus. And we pick 20 people up. They have to sign up. We bring them down here, give them a geology lecture on the bus and climatology lecture, and then have tasting stations set up in the vineyards that are featuring wines made from the grapes of that vineyard. Okay. Oh, nice. And, and the, Jennifer's the hostess. I'll explain how I grow the grapes. The winemaker will explain how he makes the wine. And it's, it's a full course. Uh, and that has been very well received. It's, those 20 slots are oversubscribed, okay. and we'll do that four times a year. So it's That's a awesome. deluxe tasting where we start in the farmhouse gardens, where you were this morning, <laughs> and we'll start with some sparkling tramonette and some smoked whitefish. We'll have Saval Blanc, and, a, and the vineyards are right there so that people can see them. And then we walk up to the Red Station, which is also set up with flowers and food, and then up to the ridge where you can see Lake Erie, and there we'll feature the Riesling wines and our ice wines. Okay. And we get, you know, we get people from all over the country. Uh, I've had, you know, numbers of people go, this is the best wine tour I've had, and I've done three wine tours in, wow. in Napa and Sonoma. That's cool. And, uh, and you get, you know, wine aficionados who ask, you know, Jeff really hard questions, and you get, you know, very innocent people who ask very basic questions. Mm-hmm. Actually, the basic questions sometimes are the hardest. Sure. Like, what's a terrier, right? <laughs> okay, all right. Wait, 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 listen, listen. We got her trying. But the great thing is, at, by the end of the class, when they get back on the bus to go back to Chautauqua Institution, which has its own special culture, they know what that means. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and they know about stewardess, and mm-hmm. I mean, I now know more about wine than I yeah. did before, you know, <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's a, a so we crazy also, industry. We also have a series, not a series, winemakers dinners at the winery. Uh, often we would have them in the warehouse mm-hmm. and we will do those two or three times a year. Uh, featuring in the spring we'll do one that's called Romance in France. We try to have a French menu and pair it with wines that are appropriate to the food served. Wow. We'll wow. Have, um, we do some events in the winery, so if you come in as a casual customer, you can participate. One is called uh, our maple liqueur, French crepes. So our winemaker makes a maple liqueur using local maple products. And during those weekends, the New York Wine and Maple Association sponsors what you and I would call pancake Pancake weekend. Sure. Nice. Maple syrup pancakes. And Fred said, but why don't we have French crepes? And so that's what we've started to do. I think that was your idea. Well, you sure jumped on it. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So we make French crepes, and we have some, we grind up uh, nuts, hazelnuts, sure. chocolate hazelnuts, cinnamon walnuts, we sprinkle it on, we roll okay. up the crepe, and you have a little pairing to go with your maple liqueur. So now that I'm starving. Yeah, that is awesome. But, Perfect. but the business model of this, unlike, I'd say, a lot of wineries in Long Island, is we don't put these events on to make money. Sure. I mean, I, I like to break even on them. But the purpose is what I would call in-depth marketing and word-of-mouth marketing. Sure. Developing our ambassadors, our, our advocates. Uh, so we try that, you know, again, the rules, if we're going to do one of these things, we're going to you know, hit the do ball well. out of the park or we're not going to do it. Absolutely. And uh, because I believe that word-of-mouth communication is the most powerful. Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. 100%. And in the fall, you could come and we'll be celebrating Vederweiser. And Sounds our German. winemaker goes it to Germany. <laughs> yeah, it's German. And it means feather white. Guess why? So our winemaker gets a lot of inspiration when he goes to Germany every year or two. And in the fall in Germany, there's Oktoberfest. We all know about that. Absolutely. At the same time, you have young Riesling that has been picked and the fermentation process has started but maybe isn't complete. And it's sort of Not opaque, like an apple cider, and that's called oh, okay. Vaderweiser. So partially fermented Riesling is Vaderweiser. And that, the translation of Vaderweiser is feather white. Yeah. And it's because it's, it's bubbly in, in, in the top oh, okay. of the white foam. Sure. Makes sense. And, so it's, and it's got about the alcohol content of a beer. And so in okay. Germany, they would feature a glass of Vaderweiser with... Uh, Flammkuchen, which is onion tart or onion cake. Oh. So it's basically a pizza with onions on sure. it. And so in the fall, Ooh. we'll have that celebration. Sometimes we usually do it on a Friday night, and people can come and you know reserve their place sure. to participate in the Germanic That's awesome. Experience. So what does a ticket generally cost? For that, $25 to $30. Okay. Okay. So sticking with the the Germany theme, Mm -hmm. because you said that we have the the same culture. Absolutely. That is the theme, yes. Is the Gewürztraminer wine, is that special to this area also, or climates like this, or do all other places? It could be. Okay. It it could be. It is a cold climate grape, though, isn't Um, it? Being good Cornell alums, though, Cornell created a variety called Treminette, which is an offshoot of Gewürztraminer. Sure. And we, we plant that. Uh, it's a little less spicy, a little more floral, uh, and I, I frankly I'm kill it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like I like its uh, wine better. Yeah. It has a very nice. I don't know if you've tasted. Have you tasted Tremonet? I have not. I'm not. so. I, like we've talked about, we're big whiskey guys. I got turned on to wine not too long ago, and Gewürztraminer is my go-to because I know that, one, I like pronouncing the name because I feel special and fancy, but two, I also like the, the flavor profile of it. Yes. So the, the Treminet, is it? Yes. Okay. yes. So Treminet is similar because its parentage is Sable Blanc and Gewürztraminer. Oh, okay. But it has a really nice rose floral aroma, which makes it a little a little more than the Gewürztraminer does. Okay. What do I got? Yeah. Now you've learned one of my husband's pet peeves. Flies? Flies. <laughs> I, I do the same thing. I literally walk around my house with a towel. And I'm like, I will end this. I will win. <laughs> so does Fred. <laughs> well, any, as any good winemaker should, because fruit flies carry the spores of acetobacter, and acetobacter is what turns wine into vinegar. So oh. you don't want them around. There you go. There that pesky around. little deer fly is just going to bite you. <laughs> I didn't know that either. <laughs> so what is wow. your favorite type of wine? 
your, you guys. On I've just told your spouses that you're allowed to have more than one favorite. And okay. in fact, you should have more than sure. one favorite, depending on what you're eating and how hot it is outside. Yes. Uh, today, like my this. favorite would be the May wine. It's chilled, it's slight, light, off dry, and infused with sweet woodruff. Um, wow. Sparkling Tremenez is another favorite because it's so versatile. It goes fabulously with smoked foods of any kind, Asian foods, uh, poultry, uh, from appetizer to main course to dessert. Okay. Uh, Pinot Noir and the, the dry rosés right now are also a, one of my favorites. So. What is your personal opinion on a red blend? It can be, a red blend often is the optimization of a winemaker's use of multiple grapes. Sure. I'll let you carry it from there because you can Another also marketing part- pontification. <laughs> is that what it is? Because I, there's, there's purists in every endeavor, right? So I didn't know if red blend was kind of like the, I'll just throw be. some stuff together. Or it's like, no, like I like a Cabernet Sauvignon just because they want to they yeah. be like the purest of, I want that. So, you and, know? You're in, and we do both here. Okay. But yeah. you're, you're actually from a wine marketing, international wine marketing standpoint, you're hitting right on the nail. Because in France, it's expected that you give the winemaker the latitude to make absolutely the best wine possible sure. out of his terroir. And so why would you take away the freedom to allow him to blend? Right. Okay, that's fair. In the U.S., we've tended to get a reputation of some of our less good vintages get blended together to make a blended wine, which is a lower price thing. Okay. And we've got it backwards. Sure. Really, you want to give your winemaker every degree of freedom you can to make the best product. And why would you take blending away from them? And then I'll get into, especially Americans, we need brand names to hook on things. Absolutely. So in coffee, it's Sumatra or Kenya, Mm -hmm. right? In wine, it's Cabernet or Chardonnay or whatever. You go to France, you don't see bottles that say Chardonnay or Cabernet. None of that. It's, it's the winery and the region that's on the bottom. Oh, okay. When you buy coffee in Europe, you don't see Sumatra or Kenya or Guatemala. You, you know, it's the brand of the, of the coffee roaster. I, I noticed that, um, not, not flexing, but in Greece, I noticed it in Greece where they had just Santorini white, and it was just Santorini white wine on the bottle, and then the label was just like a picturesque view of Santorini. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, I didn't... I didn't realize that that's why. I just thought that it was, oh, that, that's where it is. Like, okay, but I didn't know that the behind-the-scenes story. That's crazy. So it's, and the new generation, I mean, your generation is, it's, and Americans, the so-called millennials, are very much getting away from it's mm-hmm. got to be Chardonnay or it's got to be Cabernet. Sure. You know, they don't care. They just cared whether they like it or not and what it tastes like. But the other thing to keep in mind is that Europe's rules are much different than ours. They have regulations that say, wait a minute, if you want to have a wine from Bordeaux and you're a farmer, you can't grow XYZ. You grow only these if you want to carry this label. That that is a whole other political can of worms. (laughs) (laughs) That's why Chardonnay has to be made in France, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no, Chardonnay doesn't. doesn't. It has to be made of Chardonnay grapes, but... Champagne. Champagne, that's what I get. Right? Because Champagne is a region. Unless you were making Champagne before the year 2000, uh, you, can't, you can't call it Champagne. Similar Parma, to Parmesan cheese. Yeah. You know, you, it's got to be from 
Parma in Italy, mm -hmm. Parmesan cheese. Yeah, in similar to Scotch, yeah. yeah. That's an, that was a treaty that was uh, signed late late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. So you said that you just also took more land. Mm -hmm. uh, you bought more land. What, what's the plan for that? Do you have a plan or like what's Johnson Estates next? Big well, move? That, um, that was just one of the things that just amazes me. I'll take you up there if you want. But you go up to the top of that ridge, and you can see into Canada on a clear day. You know, you've got the whole north coast of America out in front of you, your vineyards laid out below you. I mean, in, in California, you know, an acre of that land would cost a million bucks. Sure. And, and here, that, you, here you can you buy it for the cost of a cow pasture. Wow. And I explained to you that the property was first acquired by William Peacock, the land surveyor, in the early 1800s, mm -hmm. and we like to brag that he must have purchased the best property for himself. Sure. So here you are. <laughs> that's fair. That is awesome. Yeah. From a farming standpoint, but you know, that's, for the, that's for the kids. That's, that is, it's, it is, you know, someday somebody's going to build some leads off the grid, fancy houses up on that, that ridge overlooking this fantastic vista. Sure. And, uh, Just don't come in the middle of the winter when. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, no problem. We got, yeah, yeah, we got tracked up, vehicles. No. Shoot up, shoot up the hill. They can ski. They whatever. Right. Uh, That's awesome. But it's, I mean, back to community development, uh, chamber of commerce stuff. I mean, we've just got some beautiful countryside around here. Drop dead mm -hmm. gorgeous. Um, that, you know, those of us who've lived here a long time sometimes forget to appreciate. Sure. And I'll do the plug now that I used to do when I was working with the wine trail, and that is if you were to visit all of the wine trails in New York State, which probably number about 11 now, I think roughly, yeah. um, our agricultural vistas are probably unparalleled. Really? Really. Wow. Yes, they're going to be pretty vistas of Finger Lakes and sure. Lake Long Island, etc. But here to have the contiguous 30,000 acres of vineyards, albeit some of them are Concord grapes, creates an environment that you don't find anywhere else. I, I don't, that is awesome. Well, Buffalo. I mean, Buffalo's mm -hmm. undergoing a real resurgence. Yep. Yes. And when we start, first started moving back, I remember coming into the Buffalo airport, and there was this big poster, and it said, Blizzard this. And the picture, really? on, the left, the picture on the left was a sunset view of a whole bunch of sailboats out over Lake Erie. And the picture on the right was somebody, somebody blowing through really nice powder at Kissing Bridge or, or Holiday Valley Ski Resort. It's, it's kind of like, you know, to people coming to Buffalo, blizzard this. Yeah. And you know what it has been now for the last, say, 30 years? Roswell Park cancer. We can cure you or yeah. something. Right. Sure. Which I think it jump. needs to be the wine region because Buffalo is the only place in the country only place that has access, easy access to Niagara Wine Trail, Canadian Wine Trail, sure. Niagara on the Lake, Niagara on the Lake, our Wine Trail, and the Finger Lakes. What other city in this country that can so say true. that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're an hour south of Buffalo right now, and it's a very easy drive. Mm -hmm. Now that the the one section of the thruway got repaved, <laughs> yeah. so yes. now that that's done, it's it's smooth. Uh, so yeah, it's, we're definitely not far away at all. Yeah. And you have over forty products. And then how how else can people find you? Like, are you on social media? Are there is there an email list? So there, uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and also that we have a website, johnsonwinery.com, and you can easily sign up for our newsletters there. And uh, Generally speaking, we try to make sure those newsletters post information not only about our new products coming out, about our wine club, 
uh, about events at the winery when they get resumed, as well as uh, shipping programs and that sort of thing. Sure. Very nice. Okay. Awesome. And, and I mean, Jennifer manages manages that. She's got a list of what thirteen thousand emails now wow. go out. Uh, we have super small. We have started a regional, uh, and it's actually program. before this COVID thing, but then the COVID kicked it off. Uh, a regional marketing program, especially in the winter, which we call our Good Neighbor program. Mm -hmm. So if you live in New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and order six bottles, I'll, I'll pay the shipping. I'll pay the FedEx oh, cool. bill to you. Oh, nice. That's awesome. That's nice of you. Thank you. Yeah. 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 So, good, you know, good if, if, you, if you want some of our wine and it's blizzarding in you know, late November. And you don't want to go down to Premier Liquor or wherever. Just, <laughs> just go online or pick up the phone and FedEx will bring it to your door. That's, That's amazing. Awesome. Yeah, you can't beat that. Mm -hmm. So then what are your typical hours as well? Um, just so that if somebody is local and does want to swing in to enjoy some events or a tour. Very easy to remember. Okay. 10 to 6 every day. Perfect. Four holidays are closed. Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, and New Year's. Otherwise, it's 10 We're to 6, here. except for January and February, we close at 5 during the week. Sure. And then your commute to work is mm, 500 mm. feet. Yeah, it's, it's about 30 paces. So from it's a house that was dangerous. built in the early 1800s, which is so sweet. That's right. Yes. A beautiful yeah. house. Yeah. Very nice. Well, thank but, you guys. You're welcome. Uh, is there anything else that you want to add? No, I'm just, it's it's still summertime sure. here. Uh, we like to have people have a look at the vineyards because it's one of our great assets, really, Absolutely. when you think about it. And so we've planted daisies on the lane to the barn. So we love it when people take pictures of their family and friends in front of the daisy lane. Sure. Or come and have outdoor tastings, which will probably continue through the month of September, weather permitting. Sure. On the weekends. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. We really appreciate it. We, we enjoyed all the history of, the, of this whole establishment and your guys' time in general and all sorts of knowledge. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank well, you. Well, well, thank you for coming. Thank you for the interest and thanks for what you're doing for Western New York. Yes. Absolutely. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Cheers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.